From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. There are lots of places you can hear about the Gators, but this is where you'll hear from the Gators. I'm your host, Adam Schick, and I'm excited to welcome you to our first episode of Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Unlike arguably the most famous podcast available, we won't be solving any crimes on this show. What we will do is give you exclusive access to Gator coaches, student-athletes, and more throughout the athletic season that you won't hear anywhere else. If you truly bleed orange and blue, Gator Tales is for you. We'll post new episodes each week on Thursdays during football season to make sure you have plenty of time to listen before kickoff. Whether it's on your drive to work, getting you through a tough session at the gym, or accompanying you on your way to the swamp, you won't want to miss it. Since we have finally reached the long-awaited start of football season, today's show takes place entirely on the gridiron. We'll get inside the head of sixth-year senior tight end Jake McGee following his recovery from a leg injury that wiped out his entire 2014 season. Then, Jeff Cardozo chats with new defensive coordinator Jeff Collins about his unit entering the season. And finally, I'll sit down with GatorZone.com senior writer Scott Carter to take a closer look at Jim McElwain's first team and what to expect from New Mexico State. But first... A stroll down memory lane with Mick Hubert, who begins his 27th season as the voice of the Gators this weekend and has witnessed countless moments that are now etched in Gator lore. I started our conversation by asking him what the beginning of a new season means to him and the Gator Nation. I think sometimes we think of opening day more in lines with with Major League Baseball as opening day being special, but Mm -hmm. it's no less special for college football because, uh, you know, I think people, uh, especially around here, they they think about Gator football almost 52 weeks a year, and for a lot of people, this just represents the start of uh, another year in their in their life. Life begins sometimes in September in the fall, so it's always great to have opening day. Openers can be all different kinds, and obviously there was a time when you had your opener here. It was a little while back, but what are your memories of your first opener in the Swamp? Well, I, I have great memory of it, and you know whether you're a, a coach or, or a player, you, you have those butterflies, and certainly as a broadcaster, I had butterflies coming from the, the Dayton Flyers, the University of Dayton, small college football, getting thrust into Florida Field. It was the thrill of a lifetime, and uh, you know back at that time, the, the north end zone wasn't complete yet. They had a scoreboard on still. You could still you could see the traffic going by on University Avenue. It was pretty much wide open there, and of course there was astroturf on the field. There was no grass yet, and as a result, I did get to see Emmett Smith play. And Emmett, it was typical Emmett. He rushed for I think about 117 yards and and uh, did what he did. But the Gators also self-destructed, and uh, I think he had three turnovers. And the Ole Miss Rebels came in and beat the Gators 24 to 19. Yes, it was an SEC opponent. It was an SEC game in the opening game of the season. In my first game, I'm driving home thinking, well, I'm 0-1 as a broadcaster, so I won't ever forget the first game. And uh, there were people booing the Gators. You know, that hadn't changed. Gators didn't play well and, uh, and, and got booed in a loss that year. Uh, so that was, a, that was a strange start to the season. And what would be a strange season? Because there'd be a coaching change in midseason. And then, as we know, uh, right around New Year's Eve, Steve Spurrier came on. 
And certainly this has that sort of vibe as well with Jim McElwain taking the reins for the first time. So going back through history with all of the debuts you've seen for Gator coaches, what are those like in terms of going through that with them, talking to them before their first game and everything that goes with it? Well, you know, Coach McElwain comes in and uh, we have a new indoor practice facility. A lot of changes he wanted. Well, Steve Spurrier was the same way. And one of the things he wanted was to get rid of that rug. They called it Doug's rug, put down in, under Doug Dickey. Uh, Spurrier wanted no part of play on the AstroTurf surface. So they brought in grass. So we had a grass playing surface, and that was kind of neat for 1990. And the field, as it always does on opening day, it looks so pristine. It looks great. And that's the way that, that grass field looked that day. And it was, a, it was a nice day. Oklahoma State came in, a couple of years removed from Barry Sanders playing, but still a very quality program. And the Gators went right down the field, the opening drive. They, they, they went 70 yards in five plays. It was three passes and two runs, and the Gators had scored in about a minute and a half. And the place was electric. I mean, this was a 1989 season where the Gators had Emmett Smith run left, Emmett Smith run right, and not throw it very much. And here Steve comes in, this 1990 opener, and the ball's flying all over Florida field, and the people were just ecstatic to see the ball in the air. And I got a feeling it could maybe be that way again this time around this year. But in that game, we scored seven early, and we kept scoring and scoring and scoring, and it hung 50 on Oklahoma State, beat them 50-7. to seven. So those are my first two openers. I'll never forget those. Overall, this is going to be the fifth time that you've seen a new coach debut in the Swamp. What are some other memorable moments from the other eras that you were able to begin? Yeah, I've uh, been very blessed to be around for all these coaches and to see some great opening games. Interesting to note that in Ron Zook's three opening games, 0-2, the Gators averaged 55 points a game. That's the highest scoring total for openers of any Gator coach. They hung a bunch uh, on UAB in that 2002 game. Ron Zook had the luxury of Steve Spurrier's quarterback hanging around, Rex Grossman. Jim McElwain doesn't have a Rex Grossman out there Saturday night, but Ron Zook had Rex Grossman, and Rex fired a 59-yard pass on the first play of the season and hit 59 yards to uh, Taylor Jacobs. And uh, one play later, the Gators were in the end zone. So two plays, they had scored a touchdown, beat UAB, I think it was 51-3. to Taylor Jacobs would catch 246 yards of passes in that game for a Gators single-game record coming in the 2002 season opener. Then in Urban Meyer's opening game, uh, the Gators uh, did not rout Wyoming. The game was never in doubt. The Gators were clearly going to whip Wyoming, and they did. But it was only 32-14 to as he tried to instill that spread offense. The pieces weren't quite there yet from Ron Zook and Steve Spurrier had been running more of a pro-style passing attack. And so, you know, it was a little bit of a work in progress. But Chris Leak went out and threw 17 straight pass completions, which set the Gators' single-game record for consecutive passes made. So that was another thrilling moment in that game for us to watch. So it had been a lot of great moments through the years on first day for new coaches. The Jim McElwain era, what have you seen so far, and what are your expectations for what it's going to look like on day one? Well, I think that we're going to see a semblance of a football team that's organized and disciplined. He's been stressing discipline, don't make stupid mistakes, and one of his sayings is, you got to win the now. And that just means whatever you're doing at that moment, do it to the fullest and best of your ability. So I, I think he wants to see that translated on the field. You know, a lot of people want to know who the quarterback's going to be, and he has said, we simply are going to play the quarterback that really makes the fewest mistakes. That in itself is what's making other guys better around you. You look at the National Football League. Everybody can throw the ball 80 yards, but 
so what if you can throw it 80 yards? If you don't know when to throw it, how to throw it, where to throw it, and why you're throwing it. And those are all decisions that have to be made. And so I think we want to see that that position at quarterback make the right decisions. But other places, too. Uh, you know, a cornerback. We have a very talented secondary, but there's a time to go for an interception, and there's a time not to. Uh, so the, you got to be smart in making those things, and that's what I want to see. I want to see us eliminate uh, dumb mistakes, penalties, eliminate turnovers, and, and just have our receivers run crisp routes, just look like they've been coached to do those things. Uh, a lot of times, you know, they, you know, they they haven't looked like they've been coached when, in fact, they really have all through the years. These coaches, no matter what staff it's been, I've been around a lot of them, you know, they work tireless hours, you know. And you just want your players to reflect what you've coached and taught them in, during the week. When they do, you look a lot better as a coach. And when they, when they can't execute, it looks like, you know, the, the typical fan would say, what are these guys doing in practice? Are they, are they working at all? Well, yeah, they're working, but it's just a matter of you hope the players come out and are sharp with a great attention to detail. And if you see that, you know, the results should take care of themselves. And that's why I'm encouraged uh, the way he's really put his stamp on the program with a vision, not just for this game on September 5th, opening day on Saturday, but for every game and for next season and the season beyond. I really think he's got a, a, a great vision that incorporates a, a solid future here. We're going to start hearing, oh my, hopefully a lot coming up here. Where did that generate? How, how did you come up with that? You know, Adam, really, by the time I was about seven or eight years old, I wanted to be a sports broadcaster. And I, a lot of people say, gee, you really, your mom and dad must be really proud of you. You, you know, you didn't have great high aspirations, high aspirations you know. You're not know, trying to be a doctor. Most people want to be a doctor or a lawyer. You want to be a sportscaster. <laughs> I get that. That's, that's who I was. I grew up watching and listening to the sports on TV and radio. And so I always wanted to do that. So everybody knew that. My, my family all knew that. And they said, well, you've got to come up with a saying. I said, you know. I said, well, do I have to? I said, well, you know, Jack Brickhouse, who's in the Baseball Hall of Fame, he always said, hey, hey. That was his big expression. They would put that back in the infant days of television. They would actually put hey, hey on the screen. It would flash back and go, hey, 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 hey. And, in fact, the, the left field foul pole at Wrigley Field has the words hey, hey written on it. And it's a tribute to him. And I think the other foul pole has, has uh, Harry Carey's uh, holy cow on it. So those were the two guys that uh, I heard, that you know, Jack Brickhouse with hey, hey, and, and uh, Harry Carey with holy cow. And then I, I had a friend, really was a, a mentor of mine, that took a job out in uh, Ventura, California, out in the L.A. suburbs, and he was always out there listening to Dick Enberg call the Rams, and he would send me back tapes of Dick Enberg calling Los Angeles Rams on KMPC Radio. And Dick was using Oh My, and I thought, you know, obviously I'm not going to, I don't know where I'm going to work, but if I work in the Midwest near home, I can't be go around broadcasting saying, holy cow. I mean, you, you can't really steal Harry Carey's holy cow. I mean, this is, this is 30 years ago. Harry Carey was still in his prime. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to steal hey, hey. But I thought, you know what? Dick Enberg's out in Los Angeles. The chances of me working out in the West Coast, not very, not very good. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that and run with it as the, the oh my. So I started using oh my really right, right out of the gate when I was back in Peoria, Illinois in my first job. And, and then I took it to, to Dayton. And then when I came here, one of the first interviews I had, a young lady reporter asked me to, if I had any expression. And I said, uh, I, I did, oh my. And I, I told her that I got it from Dick Enberg. And I could tell she had no idea who Dick Enberg was, had never heard of oh my. And I thought to myself, you know, 
this probably go over pretty big here because I'm not certain that oh my's ever been heard that much in in Florida from a West Coast sportscaster like Dick Enberg. So I thought, you know, this could look like I pioneered this thing. And so I used it and my inflection and voice quality on that is different than Dick Enberg's, but it but the but the theory is the same. It's for something good has happened and I've had fans come up to me and say, you know, Mick, uh so and so had a great play, but I, I I didn't hear you say oh my. I said, well, it just didn't strike me as an oh my play. Not every play is an oh my. I don't know when I'm going to use it. How often going to use it? I said, but if you felt that play was worthy of an oh my, then give it an oh my. You have the right to give it an oh my. Some years later, I, I was able to meet Dick Enberg. Uh, he was he, he'd moved over to CBS Sports and he was doing the SEC basketball tournament one year. So that put me in the same building as Dick Enberg. I went up, introduced myself to him, and uh, he gave me the blessing on using that. But it was a few years before that that Steve Spurrier was out in, 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 in Reno, Nevada, out at a celebrity golf outing, and Dick Enberg was there, and they got talking. And, and, and Steve Spurrier said to Dick Enberg, you know, our guy back there in Gainesville, he uses Oh My. And that's how Dick Enberg found out that I was using Oh My. And, and Dick told him, that's fine. He says, Tell that young man I stole it from a broadcaster back in the 1940s. <laughs> so Dick Enberg had stole it. That's kind of what broadcasting is. We always kind of steal from one another. So somebody said it first, Dick Enberg took it, and I took it, and I'm sure somebody will use it in 15, 20 years from now. And uh, it, it, it just kind of sums up the emotions. Uh, most of the time it's a good play, but every once in a while it's an oh my that, uh, oh my, you know, it's, <laughs> it, it's kind of a, oh gosh, I can't believe that. So it, it just kind of, it, I think it has a, has a broad appeal to everybody's different mindset as to what it means. It means something special, I think, to each individual person, and uh, for that I've been very, very grateful. When fans come up to you on the street and ask you to do it, is it something you can do on the spot, or does it have to be in the moment when you're feeling it? Pretty much so. Now, I, I have been asked to, to use Oh My for various things, and I will, uh, but it's a cheap imitation by a guy who does it, you know, <laughs> I, I, because, I, because I, don't ha- I don't have the, the same enthusiasm. I, I don't have that moment. It is kind of a, uh, a spur of the moment. I, I, can, I can say it, and, and you know, you, you might like it, but I know it's not authentic because I'm not sitting up in the broadcast booth watching a play unfold in front of me so it's just kind of a spontaneous emotion and uh, you know it's kind of like another broadcaster it's kind of like uh, asking Keith Jackson to go hey Keith can you give me a whoa Nelly I mean he's probably not going to give it to you like he would when he was broadcasting back in the day when he was you know the voice of college football for so many years. Mick thank you so much we appreciate it. Adam thank you. The snap the kick it's been blocked Our thanks to Mick Hubert, who you'll hear throughout the season here on Gator Tales. One name that will hopefully draw a lot of oh my's this year is tight end Jake McGee. The sixth-year senior transferred here from Virginia last year in hopes to make a big splash under Will Muschamp. But in the early stages of the 2014 season opener against Eastern Michigan, he broke his fibula and tibia and was lost for the season. But good news came when he was granted a sixth year of eligibility by the NCAA and now has unfinished business on his mind. A lot has certainly changed since McGee last took the field, but it's clear he's ready for his final campaign to get underway. It's an exciting time. It's, it's something you put in a lot of work in the offseason, whether it's weight room, spring ball, camp, and it's just game week. It's just that excitement is through the roof. You can feel it on campus. You can feel it around the the area and it's just something you just can't wait for it to get here. 
Unfortunately, you did not get a lot of those game weeks last year, given your injury. Take us back to that moment. What was that like in the opener and, and just having everything change so drastically? Yeah, it's something, you, you know, I transferred down here and been working really hard for a successful year, but it's, you know, injuries happen. You know, it's a tough break, but wasn't really and still not looking for pity from anyone or anything like that. I worked as hard as I could to get back, and I was uh, fortunate enough to get a, another season, and I'll make the most of it this year. So many players that get hurt talk about how it changes their approach to the game because you have to do so much more on the sidelines and as a teammate off the field. How did you grow and evolve during that process? It was something that you just can't really do anything about it. You live with it. You try to encourage your teammates as much as you can. And mine was serious enough where I wasn't around a ton other than just in the training room. It's something you try to, especially being older, I try to just help the younger guys or talk with guys that you think might need it at the most. But it was it was really, I was just in the shadows last year as, you know, as I was recovering. What were the most difficult parts of that recovery process? Was it the mental side of getting back, or was it more physically just getting back in shape? No, I, mentally I'm, I'm pretty strong. So that, that part was just once I heard what I had to do, it was I was doing it no problems. It was, you know, I had non-weight bearing on it for six weeks, so, it, you know, I'm a leg short. So it was, it was tough getting around, but, you know, the training staff and teammates, you know, they made sure I was taken care of. So it was just getting back on my feet and once that happened it really just all snowballed and just kept getting better and better. Things have obviously changed a lot here from the last time you were on the field so talk about the transition process in terms of the new coaching staff and how that's changed things. You never like to see guys get fired lose their job but when new staff comes in it's you know you try to forget about the past and sort of start for a new future and I think uh, Coach McElwain and Everybody he's hired have been great, really care about us as players, as you know, all head coaches do, but really have put the best foot forward to getting us successful and putting in the things necessary to uh, build a winner. If you look at the history of Coach Mack and Coach Nuss, they rely on the tight ends a lot. So talk about your role in this offense and what you're expecting to be doing here early in the season. Everywhere they've been, they've usually had a successful tight end, and it's a position that they emphasize in blocking, catching the football, scoring touchdowns and all that. You know, my goal is to show that I can be a complete tight end and, you know, be a successful one in the SEC. After last year, there was some question whether you were going to get that next year of eligibility, and you said if it wasn't going to be the case, then you're going to start preparing for the NFL draft. What was the decision like to come back here and try to play another year of college ball as opposed to going into the NFL? If I got the year, I wanted to come back just because, you know, I didn't want to leave with a sort of sour taste in my mouth. But it was really up in the air for a little while, and I didn't know whether I was going to or not. I was training and rehabbing as hard as I could regardless of whether it was college or, you know, having to move on. But it was something that once I did get it, it was a relief and, you know, Coach Matt called me right away in compliance, and it was just an exciting time to be able to, you know, actually play in the swamp this year and do what I was hoping to do last year. You started your career at Virginia. What made you want to come to Florida? What about this place was special? Florida is a school I, I grew up seeing. I'm from Virginia, but it was SEC football, Florida Gators. You know, there's a lot of history here, a lot of NFL players, pro bowlers, Heisman Trophy winners. The opportunity presented itself, and, you know, I wanted to take advantage of it. You mentioned growing up in Virginia, now being in Gainesville. What are some of the biggest differences between those two spots? Well, for me, it's just being away from sort of my bubble. My whole family's in Virginia, people I knew, people I went to high school with down here. I don't have anybody that I uh, grew up with or anything like that. But at the same time, I'm old enough to where it's not like I'm going off to college. It was you know, more of like a getting a first job, if you will. Transition was fine. Guys were great. and it was, it was really an easy process. 
your status as an elder statesman of sorts has a lot of the younger tight ends say how important you are to helping them grow and develop in your leadership. How have you really embraced that role, and how has that become a part of who you are? Well, especially college football, you spend so much time together. And when you got younger guys that you can see have as much talent as anyone and are going to be great football players, it's sort of my job, and I'd be doing a disservice to the program if I didn't help them along and really give them everything. Especially it makes it really easy when you have a group of guys that are eager to learn and want to sort of pick your brain with everything. And then even me, I'm able to grow off them and see stuff they're doing. And you're spending all that time together, you can make each other better. Being one of the older guys in the team, does anybody give you a hard time? Any old man type jokes? Yeah, you get a little jokes, especially with uh, all students coming back and everybody's laughing that I'm like 10 years older than them. So I, uh, I try to lay low and just uh, stay hidden. <laughs> you ever have any problems with your teammates and not knowing certain things? They're talking about maybe a new song that, that you're not down with or anything you're not quite on top of? It's more the songs that I grew up with that like <laughs> you're thinking everybody knows and then it's like these guys haven't ever heard it in the locker room and you're just like, Dang, that's when it hits you. It's when you're listening to music and they have no clue what it is. Certainly you don't have a ton of free time off the field when you do. What TV shows do you like to sit down and take in? My favorite show ever is probably Prison Break, hmm. um, which I've seen a few times. And then right now I'm watching the Star series, Power, just because everybody's watching it, so I wanted to stay in the loop. But it's either I'm binge-watching shows or playing video games. That's mostly all my spare time away from football. Did you catch Prison Break at the time it was on, or did you binge that one after the fact? I watched it while it was on, and then I binge-watched it again. So I've, I've watched it all the way through twice now. Binging or live? Which one are you more of an advocate for? If you watch it live, you got to put up with the commercial breaks and the months off of the seasons, and then like they really get you with the suspense the next week, whereas binge watch, you lose a lot more sleep watching. <laughs> Last movie you saw in a theater? What we see? During camp, we saw The Mission Impossible. I, I don't even remember what. It's like number 20 that Tom Cruise has done, but uh, it was pretty good. Tom Cruise hangs off the side of a plane in Mission Impossible. What's the most dangerous thing that you've ever done that maybe would come close to being called a, a stunt? Outside of playing football. Yeah, outside of football. I, I mean, I feel pretty reckless on these scooters they got down here that they're making me drive. But, uh, you know, I watched the clip of Tom Cruise doing that live. And uh, for a guy making that much money, I would have just done the stunt double. But, you know, more power to him. Favorite pro teams? You know, for me, where I grew up, I mean, all the teams are within a couple hours. So right now I'm really, I just cheer for the guys that I, I played with or from Virginia and Florida that uh, I knew and played with, grew up with, and like watching people you know be successful. Who's an athlete that you most admire? Well, I don't know if admire is the word, but uh, one of my best friends that I grew up with is actually Luke Buenco. He's a center for the Jacksonville Jaguars, and he's someone that he's gone through the, the process of playing college, got his master's degree, and now he's playing in the NFL, so it's something that I'm looking to mimic. And he, I mean, he gives me as many pointers as he can, and I go up and see him a bunch. He comes down here. He's actually going to be at the first game, just have the way their schedule works. So that sort of guy just... You know, you can bounce stuff off of, and it's cool to see. Final question for you. When you're about to come out of the swamp on Saturday for the opener, what's going to be in the headphones? What's on the pregame playlist? You know, this Saturday, I might not even be listening to music. <laughs> I'll hear the crowd noise. I'll be interacting with the other people without headphones. But once you get in here, I sort of cut the music off and just sort of let that natural environment take over, which, especially here in the swamp, probably the best in college and pro football. Nothing else you can do to mimic that. Nothing wrong with that. Jay, thank you so much. Yep, anytime. Prior to transferring, Jake led the Cavaliers in 2013 with 43 catches for 395 yards and two touchdowns as a junior. Moving on, 
The Gator defense will have a slightly different flavor this year, as Jim McElwain made a splash by hiring away Mississippi State's defensive coordinator to take control of that side of the ball here in Gainesville. They may spell their names differently, but it seemed fitting to have Jeff Cardozo of the Gator IMG Sports Network introduce us to Jeff Collins. Coach, you've been on campus for uh, for quite a long time, but haven't been a part of game day yet. So, uh, but you're pretty pumped to coach the boys up. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited. You know, today we get to kick off in the swamp. Um, it'll be actually my first game here, and so I'm excited just to be out there in the orange and blue and see our guys perform and all the hard work they've put in. You know, for that last eight months since we've been here, you know, finally, you know, get to pay off. What does that eight months entail? Certainly, you got to meet a lot of the guys. You got to see what they're they're made of. Um, what is that process like trying to get them ready for today? Sure. Well, the nice thing is I got to be here with Coach Mack during December during bowl prep and kind of saw, you know, how they were in their natural state, if you will. And uh, you know, just Coach Mack and the rest of the coaching staff um, instilling a culture in them. Um, the expectations that that we have as a coaching staff um, and trying to get that to go throughout the locker room with the leadership and, uh, you know, just get them to work hard, understand what we expect is one of the biggest things. Was there a certain buying in or did they all accept what you guys were trying to bring pretty easily? Yeah, I think, you know, they're they're intelligent kids and they're hardworking kids and they want to win. You know, they have high expectations and, you know, I don't know if the expectations that they had personally have been met. You know, the reason why they chose Florida is to play for championships. And uh, so, you know, Coach Mack and the rest of the coaches coming in and there's a blueprint that ends up being successful. So the kids want to dive in. And, you know, I think they've been great. And uh, the leadership of the team and the coaches is has melded good together. You were obviously here for the bowl game, like you mentioned, and uh, you got to see a pick at the end of the game by some Hargraves guy. So right. you, you know what he can do, and, and you know how good this defense was. Um, you know, what do you try to do then? To do you bring in your own stuff? Do you allow them to still do some of the things that they did last year to make them successful? Yeah, one of the biggest things is just seeing what they do well. You know, kind of the square peg in the round hole. If somebody does something well enhance it, add upon it. Um, and the big thing that we stressed with them was situational football. You know, the, the third down defense, red zone defense, points after turnovers, those kind of things might not have been to the level of expectations that they have or we have. And so teaching them how we can excel in those critical areas, and they saw it and they saw themselves have success. So it built upon that. Play fast. I've heard that a lot. Right. Um, what, what does that mean? Yeah, just play with energy, play with emotion, run to the ball every single play, and we try to cross-train as many guys on defense as possible so you can sell out as hard as you can play. And if you start getting tired, we got another guy ready that can come in, spell you, and he's playing at a high level and keep guys rolling through. And, uh, you know, the above the line, below the line, guys' rep count, um, they understand that. And every single day we go out to practice, their reps are either going to be increased or, or decreased. And uh, they've kind of bought into that and really appreciate it. What's this week been like? Because obviously it's all been about Florida. Now you have a team to prepare for you. You've got to show them film. You've got to have guys understand what's going on. So what's a typical game week like for you? Yeah, you know, teaching them the opponent, you know, on Monday, um, scouting reports, you know, get with the scout team and run the run the plays that we think they're going to run. Um, but, you know, the big thing is the level of preparation, um, having something other than our offense to, to compete against. You have a, a common goal and a common objective. And the, the kids appreciate that. You see the offense and defense, you know, working, you know, really well together. And I think the camaraderie and the friendships that are on this team across the sides of the ball has been awesome.
you know, and so I, I think we just keep building on that. So what do you see in uh, this New Mexico State offense coming in today? Yeah, they've got a lot of starters coming back. They've got two really good running backs, um, a dynamic receiver. Um, they get another receiver that was injured last year back that was a really good player two years ago. Um, they've signed some junior college kids, a receiver and a tight end and a center, um, to add what they, they already have. But, I mean, it's a, it's a good group. They only gave up nine sacks. Uh, the O-line's experienced. The quarterback makes good, quick decisions. So, so we got our work cut out for us. So for you guys trying to get after the quarterback, what, what's your plan on that? Not only today, but throughout the entire year, how aggressive are you going to be? Sure. Yeah, the, you know, we've got some really good D-linemen up front. Coach Rump has done a great job with those guys. Um, so generate pass rush with four. Um, and then we also have some really good blitzers at linebacker and at safety. Um, so just seeing, you know, when the time is right, whether that's all the time or some of the time, you know, that will be determined by the game plan. But, you know, that's been a big point of emphasis for us. We heard you talk about the strength of this team being the secondary and certainly some good linebackers. Getting Antonio back is huge for you guys, but just the, the rest of the, the guys on the field besides the D-line, what, what do you expect from them? Yeah, you know, the, the linebacker core with uh, Antonio and J.D. Um, and Alex Angelo really stepping up this offseason, um, expecting big things from him. And then uh, Jeremy Powell, Danny McMillan have had really good camps, so we're expecting them to contribute a great deal. You know, they're big-time special teams players for us. But now they're going to have a bigger role in the defense, and, and I think they're embracing that. Coach, last thing for you. Um, you've, you've seen the swamp empty. Now it's, it's going to be packed. What do you want this crowd to be like, yelling and screaming? Uh, what do you want uh, the, the energy level in this place to be? Yeah, <laughs> as loud as it could possibly be. <laughs> third downs, we make a big deal about third down is money down. And you'll see our kids that will have money down signs on the sidelines. Our kids will be throwing money signals at each other. Because that is a critical situation on third down. we got to get off the field. So the louder, the better, and our guys will feed off that. Well, uh, I'm sure this crowd is uh, anxious, and they will be that way. It's been a long time since we've had some Florida football. So, Coach, congratulations. Good luck, and uh, we'll talk to you throughout the year. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks to both J-E-F-F Cardozo and G-E-O-F-F Collins. Finally today... We want to make sure you're totally prepared for the start of the Jim McElwain era. In order to do that, we've recruited Scott Carter to help us look at all the major storylines for the Gators heading into the season and also what we can expect to see from New Mexico State. We're joined now by Scott Carter, senior writer for GatorZone.com. What does what senior mean? That means you're getting up there a little bit? It means I've got more gray hairs than I used to, Adam. Been around the block a few times and uh, getting ready for another season uh, Saturday to start. And that means you've seen a lot of season openers and a lot of debuts as well. So this, it's kind of a, a lot of things in one. It's the start of a new era. It's the start of a new season. What intrigues you the most? Well, anytime you have a new coach that takes over a program like Florida, one that's in the national spotlight, one where expectations are uh, very high. It's, it's always interesting. And, you know, we've had Jim McElwain around now for about eight months and you've uh, gotten to know him publicly a little bit, you know, to talking about his vision for the program. We've seen some things happen in terms of, you know, a, a new indoor practice facility and some of his uh, messaging or what have you, but we haven't seen his football team play yet. And, you know, that's what everybody wants to see. And we finally get to see that Saturday. And this is a, a coach that came to Florida with some pretty good credentials. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nick Saban's offensive coordinator won two national titles. I think that really elevated his status because you look at his career, he spent most of it far from the spotlight. I mean, here's a kid who grew up in Montana, 
played at Eastern Washington, grew up uh, in the Western uh, U.S., and spent most of his career there. And then he gets to Alabama. They win big. He gets a, his first head coaching job at Colorado State and turns around really what was a more bound program there into, uh, you know, wins 10 games last year and uh, develops some pretty good players. And the offense looked good doing it. And, of course, uh, Florida offense maybe hasn't looked so good lately, and that's a big reason why Jim McElwain is here. That seems to be the question that you're hearing most often leading into this year. As you mentioned, McElwain's been around for eight months, but yet no one's seen what the product looks like. What do you think it's going to look like on day one, and how's that going to differ from what we've seen recently? Just if you look at what he's done in his career, you know, he ran more of a a typical pro-style offense at Alabama. He had great running backs there, you know, and guys like Trent Richardson, Eddie Lacy, guys who went on to the NFL. Uh, good quarterback play. Uh, and then he had the same in Colorado State. Garrett Grayson last year, a quarterback, one of the best receivers in the country, Rayshard Higgins. So, so he's had talent. He's been able to eventually get his system into place. But I'm not so sure that ideally he has exactly what he's looking for here at Florida because he inherited an offense, uh, I think I've used, or he's used the term, it's almost like a group of misfit toys. <laughs> You've had, what, four or three offensive coordinators in four years. They're all recruiting different kind of players to fit maybe their big picture of the offense. And so he gets here, and you've got all these group, this collection of players, and they all have some skill in different ways. So how's he, how do you make that work? So I still think he's going to, it's going to be more of a pro-style offense, uh, He's mentioned the use of a lot of shifts, a lot of motion. Get guys into space somehow uh, and hopefully get them the ball quickly and see what they can do. But, you know, he's got to find playmakers. That's what he's been focused on in camp. And, uh, you know, he's still got to find a quarterback. I mean, we're going to see both of the, the quarterbacks in the opener. So what is it exactly going to look like? I think I'm as interested <laughs> as anyone else is to find that answer out. Uh, but I do think you'll see – some motion and shifts and just use of uh, the personnel. He, he likes tight ends, a lot of two tight end looks. I mean, he, he offers a lot of different looks, and I think that will still be part of what you see with the Gators this year. You mentioned the quarterbacks, and those are two guys that he inherited as well. You've gotten to see him in practice and what they're doing. We know they're both going to play in this opening game. What strengths are they both going to bring, and how is it going to change the way the team operates? Well, we'll start with Treon Harris. We saw him last year. He started six games. You know, I think he threw nine touchdowns, but the most impressive thing was probably just his escapability. He was able to avoid some sacks and pick up positive yardage, and he, he's, he's thrown some really nice balls down the field, but he still has a lot of room to grow as a passer. You can tell that. Uh, his athleticism is obviously a plus. I think if Treon Harris is in the game, the quarterback's on the move a lot, and to see if that can kind of spark things. With Will Greer, uh, here's a guy we, we've never seen take a snap at Florida except in the spring game, but came in as a highly touted what, Parade All-American, Parade mm-hmm. National Player of the Year, set all these records in North Carolina, but yet now playing at Florida in the SEC is a lot different. And, you know, I think for him it's just a matter of how is he going to respond to his first game pressure. And if he's able to do what he's equipped to do, it, he's you know more of your pro, uh, typical – drop back passer he's mobile he can get out of the mm-hmm. pocket and make some plays but he's not going to probably take off and make people miss like Treon Harris can but he, he throws the ball well gets it out of his hand well we just haven't seen it yet so we've heard about it but until you see you don't really know what he's going to look like but 
they want to at least get that opportunity on Saturday to see how he responds. The offensive line has been a big question mark, and that's obviously going to be a huge key to the success of either quarterback, regardless which one's in there. How is this going to come together with so many new players trying to make up that line? I mean, it's going to be a game-by-game thing, Adam, where he released the depth chart on Monday, and he had 10 players on there, so that's a good start. <laughs> at the Better end, than spring. <laughs> yeah, at the end of spring, they had six scholarship linemen on the depth chart. Now he's got 10 and a few in reserve. No doubt that was one of the big focuses of fall camp the past month to kind of try to find some continuity along the offensive line with really a group that, other than Tripp Thurman, the fifth-year senior who has 10 career starts, there's not a, a player who has started a game at Florida. Uh, one of the guys they brought in as a transfer to help fill some voids were uh, Mason Halter from Fordham. He's a, He was a, a FCS All-American. Mm-hmm. Uh, he started a lot of games up there. But, you know, again, he's playing in the SEC is a lot different than the, the Patriot Conference. So he'll be tested as the season progresses. But I think mix those guys in like that. Cam Dillard at center, a guy who's been around. And obviously among the recruits, there's two who really stood out in the camp. One was Martez Ivy, who the most decorated of those newcomers. You know, a lot of people already look at this guy as a potential anchor along the offensive line in his first season. He had a some knee issues uh, at the end of practice. I think they'll get him back sooner than later. But, uh, you know, McElwain hasn't ruled him out for Saturday yet, but he'll just be one of those game-time things, it sounds like. And then with Fred Johnson, another true freshman who's really come on. So so it's going to be a mixed match of really a couple of transfers, a lot of new guys, and guys like Trip Thurman, who's been around, Cam Dillard, who's finally getting his first chance. So mm-hmm. it will be interesting to see if they do get better uh, – quick or if that's a, that's a work in progress but with young quarterbacks the you know the faster they can get it that should help out there's been so much focus on the offense for obvious reasons and with McElwain's background but the defense that's been the rock for Florida for the last few years do you expect that to stay the same under this new coaching staff and how might it look different yeah from all indications it's going to be a similar system I mean Jeff Collins the new defensive coordinator comes here from Mississippi State he likes, uh, you know, he likes to set tempo on defense. You know, they'll play fast and physical. That's what their motto has been. I think it's they're going to continue to play that style. Schematically, it's not going to be much different. I think one difference, maybe they'll gamble more on big plays. Uh, Mississippi State had a lot of sacks last year. They were among the leaders in interceptions. Those are two areas that, while the Gators certainly put up good numbers overall defensively, I mean, those are places where they could have improved. I think you'll see maybe some more gambling by those guys, and that may lead to giving up some bigger plays. But if it leads on the flip side to a few more interceptions and big sacks, kind of evens out there in the end. Maybe a big surprise to Gator fans was the news that Antonio Morrison is ready to play after some doubt he'd even be ready to go the entire season. So what does that do for the linebacking core? You know, it gives them their veteran presence in there. He led the team in tackles last year with over 100 tackles, and it's still kind of amazing when you look at this. Here's a guy who hurt his knee in the Birmingham Bowl, what, January 2nd or 3rd? And usually this injury, you know, takes an average of 10 to 12 months. Mm-hmm. And he, he basically rehabbed to get back on the field after two off-season knee surgeries. He rehabbed in about eight months. So, wow. I mean, that's, that's pretty impressive. It just kind of shows you his commitment. And obviously Antonio Morrison has a big season ahead of him because he's a guy who has aspirations of the NFL and, he really uh, broke out last year as kind of the, the leader in the middle of this defense, and uh, Florida is going to look for him to be 
more of that this year under a new defensive coordinator, and uh, to get him back was a huge bonus for Florida. Florida's first opponent, New Mexico State, a team that most people don't know that much about. So what can you tell us that we need to know about the Aggies? Well, this is a program that, you know, we know they've been here once before the only meeting. It was not pretty for the Aggies. Uh, I still remember that game, Adam, actually, 70-21, to 21, Terry wow. Dean. Seven first-half touchdown passes. So whether it's Treon Harris or Will Greer Saturday, I guarantee you Jim McElwain will take seven first. I think people in the stands <laughs> would love to see that as yeah. well. But, you know, New Mexico State, obviously, they're going to come in here a heavy underdog. I mean, they're 0-12 all-time against the SEC. Doug Martin, third-year coach, you know, he took over a program that really was kind of in shambles due to some APR loss of scholarship issues. Mm-hmm. He's had to build the scholarship numbers back up. You know, their quarterback, Tyler Rogers, is a guy who didn't get sacked a lot last year, only nine times, but he did lead the nation at 23 interceptions, so... Yeah, I'm sure Vernon Hargraves and Duke Dawson and some of those other defensive backs, they probably uh, looked at those 23 interceptions last year and their eyes got pretty big. So there may be some chances if if New Mexico State has to throw the ball for Florida to make some plays. When they return 19 starters on the offensive and defensive sides of the ball, and they do have the experience of playing against the SEC recently. Last year they went to LSU, they lost 63-7, to but Jim McElwain pointed out in his press conference that they're not going to walk into the swamp and have no idea what it's like to play in an atmosphere like that because they were just a death valley. Yeah, I don't think they'll be blown away by the atmosphere. What could blow them away is the talent gap. <laughs> we saw that kind of last year with Eastern Michigan in the sure. first game. But undoubtedly, they're in the Sunbelt Conference, which is a conference that's improved some in recent years. And as we mentioned earlier, I mean, Doug Martin, you know, he's 4-20 his first two seasons. They lost 10 in a row coming into this game. So no doubt they're going to come in here hungry. Well, Scott, I know that you, me, all of us are very excited to see what this looks like on Saturday and look forward to talking about it with you next week. Yeah, same here, Adam. That is Scott Carter, senior writer for GatorZone.com. And that's a wrap on our first episode of Gator Tales. We really hope you enjoyed it and are looking forward to hearing your feedback. Email GatorsPodcast at gmail.com or send a tweet to us at Gators Podcast and let us know your thoughts about our first episode and what you want to hear in the future on Gator Tales. Remember to check out our latest episode next Thursday where we'll get you set for Florida's Birmingham Bowl rematch with East Carolina and more. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in the swamp.